Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Floor is rising. I am Sabertooth, and with me is Kizu. I'm a professional NFT collector, and Kizu is a professional art critic. On this podcast, we talk deeply about the business of creating, collecting, and analyzing NFTs. So if you are a creator or collector of NFTs, or you want to be, jump in. The water's warm. We're going to talk about probably the hottest generative artist today, Tyler Hobbs. He recently produced the drop on art blocks of Fidenza, and it's basically set records in terms of secondary sales. The lowest secondary sales as, as of right now is, is around 29 ETH, which is, which is around $100,000. And I, I would say the, the aesthetics of Tyler's Fidenza collection is kind of the quintessential aesthetics that at the present day, generative collectors kind of appreciate. Um, I mean, how, how would you describe the aesthetics of Fidenza? I really love what Tyler's done. And I think he's done a lot to, on his own website, he's also written about the kind of generative art that he espouses and, and does. And I think, like you said, it's really hard to summarize or encapsulate what he does because there's so much visual variety in terms of the patterns, the kind of uh, construction. It's almost like an anti-Rafael Rosenthal. I mean, I don't mean to take his name as representative of, of all the early internet art, but I think that, you know, Tyler represents the school of generative art that almost believes in the, um, the infinite potential of, of the the gender of our algo to, to almost transcend what we have come to previously know as, as artistic style, right? Because, you know, usually an artist is known for a signature style. And even though throughout the course of their career, these artists, you know, evolve and, you know, we have artists that are known for an early style and then a mid-career and then late career and so on. And the more you know, chameleonic artists are known for multiple styles, but it's it's very rare that an artist comes to prominence with as many styles as Tyler has been showing us. It's almost as if it's built to to kind of like do away with the whole idea of artistic style itself. And by that, I don't mean that. I mean, ironically, it's that his work is the Fidenza series has kind of dabbled in so many styles that it's hard to really encapsulate. And yet, and yet when you look at one, you kind of know that, well, for me, there is something kind of like identifiable about it. But individually, the works are quite varied. He kind of like churns through almost this encyclopedia of, of styles that you could then liken to other you know, artists throughout our history that have made similar work. Obviously, the process might be very different. What I've seen so far of Tyler's work to me, suggests the, the bigger question of whether we are reaching a stage where these artists are kind of eschewing a signature style in favor of kind of encompassing all of them, <laughs> uh, if that makes sense. If we look at, say, Tyler's Fidenza drop, as you alluded to, if you just look at it visually, you might be thinking, well, like, you know, some of these pieces are so visually different to one another that they can't possibly have come from the same style. We know that the way they were produced is basically through the same sort of algorithm, it's the same generative algorithm. So, so definitively, the they are produced by the same method, hence style. So does that mean that in this sort of new generative space that styles cannot really be defined visually? 
that it's defined by the methodology and that the same methodology can produce what traditionally has been sort of several different styles. Is it a new way of even defining what the word artistic style means? Traditionally, style was defined in terms for visual artists, was defined in terms of an identifiable kind of, for want of a better word, uh, identifiable look in terms of final output. So whether it was artists working, you know, and includes sculpture, includes paint, pixels, any, any medium, any chosen medium. Traditionally, we would then, or art historians and, and you know, would, would look at how these works looked in terms of a series, in terms of a few years, in terms of shows at, you know, galleries and museums, and try and kind of then analyze that artist's practice in terms of a group of works, a series that was produced, the final visual output. But with genderous art, I think, as you mentioned, it's very much about the process. They might be using exactly the same you know, well, processing, for example, or the same language, but each time a work is generated, it's extremely different because there's the element of randomness that, you know, so that each time the machine churns, so to speak, you get something very different. And that is something that you can't discern from the visual output. That's how generative art operates, basically. It's a kind of paradox in the sense that it's the same program all the time, and yet because there's an element of uncertainty and randomness each time, the output is, is wildly different. So I think that's really about the technology, and I think that previously artists had no means of engaging with this so-called paradoxical mechanism where you had the same program each time and yet, you know, something very different at the end. With respect to Tyler's work, is the price premium that's assigned to each type of work and how the country where the artists come from typically affects that? Because the NFT space, even though it's quite nascent, I've noticed that there is definitely a price premium attached. Now, people who are sort of named and known compared to anons or pseudonymous artists, especially early on in, in, in someone's career. Do you notice that there is some kind of first world premium in a sense? Or or rather, well, not quite first world. Is there an English speaking premium in crypto art and NFT uh, in generative, well, not just generative art, I think. In, in There's all kinds of premiums. I, I think there is an English speaking premium I think there is a cultural premium. I think there is a there is a known premium. I think there's a racial premium. Uh, so basically, all the prejudices and biases that you know we in the in the real world that we're trying to eliminate in the crypto world does actually exist, uh, and not just in the in the NFT slash art world, but just across sort of crypto in general. So I definitely think there is a bias towards you know, US based projects, but artists um, in general, not necessarily because it's US-based, but because of the English premium and then the cultural premium. And specifically because I think in NFTs and in the crypto space, sort of broadly in general, that most NFT buyers feel that the NFT is a way for them to connect with the artist. And if an artist can communicate you know, well in English using all the latest sort of cultural forms of signaling, and memory and all that sort of stuff. I think NFT buyers will pay a premium for that. Whereas someone who might be just as talented visually, but can't say, you know, troll or meme as well uh, as someone else, pays for that in lower prices for their for their work. And I think that is especially prevalent in the in the NFT space. And I'm curious whether that actually occurs 
you know, in, in other art marketplaces? It's kind of, a, you know, the market so far has, has shown itself to be very peer-to-peer, right? And I mean that in a literal sense, where the collectors and the artists are actually, you know, retweeting each other and, you know, when they when they sell for whatever price on whatever platform, the platform retweets it, the artist retweets it, the collector retweets to his own or his or her own community or follower contingent. And it fosters this very intimate relationship, right? A direct one between collectors and artists that, you know, traditionally, obviously, there were many um, middlemen involved, whether it was a gallery or artist, um, excuse me, museum. This actually presents an opportunity for collectors because essentially... A lot of people think that when you're collecting art and, and you're sort of evaluating artists, you're valuing them on the basis of, you know, how you think their their sort of style will, will age and, and morph as the career goes on. But I think a, a, an easier form of arbitrage is, is to select artists that visually you find on par with someone who's selling much higher, but is suffering due to lack of you know, ability to communicate in English, which is a lingua franca of, uh, of sort of crypto art currently, or just crypto in general, and, and to bank on the fact that they will sort of improve that over time and sort of raise their social media slash mimetic value. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Boys Rising. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe, follow, and give us a review on your favorite podcast app. Remember to also follow us on Twitter at Floor is Rising. You can reach out to us, send us a question, and just send us a DM on Twitter at Floor is Rising.